Well, having uh, completed 1 Corinthians 14 last week, we move on to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I actually had uh, prepared a different message for today for Church in the Park, Um, and uh, I would still like to do that. We'll take a little bit of a uh, detour, uh, Lord willing, for the next three weeks, um, wanting to preach a sermon series on God's grace, and specifically God's grace in three different areas, God's grace in forgiveness, God's grace in my justification, and then God's grace in my sanctification. Uh, I wanted to take a little bit of a detour for that uh, for Church in the Park. I decided, well, since we were going to be here today, um, that we were going to just resume with 1 Corinthians um, as, uh, as we had been. So uh, that gives you maybe a little bit of a roadmap uh, for where we're going, Lord willing, next week. But we are entering today into 1 Corinthians 15, and this is the 44th sermon on the book of 1 Corinthians. We have two more chapters left, and then we are completed with the book. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a very crucial chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. The heart of the gospel message is right here in 1 Corinthians 15. This chapter is a chapter that provides for us a theology of the resurrection. In fact, we preach from or read this passage uh, for Easter many, many times, um, and this is where we spend a lot of time uh, around Easter. Hello. John MacArthur says uh, about this chapter, Unlike most of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15 is devoted entirely to doctrine and to a single doctrine at that. These 58 verses, Paul gives the most extensive treatment of the resurrection in all of Scripture. And that is certainly true enough. In fact, I counted, and I forgot to write it down, but there are three or four imperative verbs in all of chapter 15. In these 58 verses, there's only three or four verbs of command which means that, and if you remember when we started 1 Corinthians, we said that the book of 1 Corinthians is one of the densest Pauline epistles with regard to commands. That's why we said the book of 1 Corinthians is a theology of Christian sanctification. Paul is saying, do this, do that, act this way, behave this way. He's been very practical throughout this entire book, giving us instructions most recently on how we are to act in the church with regard to our spiritual gifts. You are to do this, not this, act this way, not this way, do it in love, so on and so forth. Very practical. Well, now what Paul does is he shifts gears here to talk about a theology of the resurrection, and he gives almost no imperative verbs in the entire chapter. It is hard to overestimate the importance of chapter 15. Paul says this in verse 17, which we will not get to today. But he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And of course, in Romans 10, 9, we read, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart the resurrection, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's it's almost impossible to overestimate the significance of, of the doctrine of the resurrection to who we are as Christians. Everything that we believe hinges on this. If Christ has not been raised, as Paul says, then what we are doing here is is valueless, is pointless. Let's just all go home and find something else to occupy ourselves with. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to our faith as Christians. And so let's go ahead and begin uh, today by reading this section. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. We're going to be looking at this passage in three sections today. Uh, Verses 1 through 2, we'll see an effective gospel. Verses 3 through 8, we will see a proven resurrection. And then in verses 9 through 11, efficacious grace. Let's begin here in verses 1 through 2. This chapter, as we have acknowledged already, is the centerpiece of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. It begins to us simply by declaring the effectiveness of the gospel. What Paul does is, as he begins telling to us the importance of the resurrection, he begins by saying the gospel is effective. In other words, the gospel works. Those of you who are in our membership class know that last week we shared salvation testimonies. And one of the things that uh, I said as we went around and talked about hearing, we heard your, your salvation testimonies, was let's simply just rejoice in this, and that is the gospel still works. I mean, people are still, 2,000 years later, being saved by the grace of God. And that really is essentially what Paul says in the first two verses. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Uh, MacArthur notes and says the point of the first two verses is that the Corinthian believers were themselves living evidence that this doctrine was true. <laughs> look, look at what God has done in your life. There is evidence here that is in abundance. And of course, you can see the progression that he describes. First, the gospel was preached, then the gospel was received. Then they stand in it. Then he describes them as being saved by it. And finally, he says that they hold fast in it. Now, there are a couple of observations that I want to make here as we look at these two verses. And first one is this. It is noteworthy that 2,000 years after the resurrection of Christ, the church is still alive and doing well in the world. Okay, We are here 2,000 years later. And, And not only this, the church is substantially larger than it was 2,000 years ago. And add to this the fact that the church is thriving even in parts of the world when, when the church is faced with intense persecution. I mean, you have a story 
of Christianity that begins with 12 nobodies 2,000 years ago in Jesus Christ, and now the church throughout every single age has been faced with persecution, with affliction, with opposition again and again and again, and 2,000 years later, the church is thriving. If that is not a success story, I don't know what is. And Jesus, of course, promised this much, right? Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And what does he say about the church? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can we not see this to some degree? Add to this reality, and if you were going to create an institution that you wanted to last thousands of years, I mean, you would assemble the most noble minds that you could think of. I mean, if you and I were making this. I mean, we, we, we would gather, we would, we would conduct interviews and surveys, and, and we would find the cream of the crop and the best of the best. Well, who does God use? Well, 1 Corinthians, earlier in the book, 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is, this is the lot. And this is what lasts 2,000 years. Of course, not because of us, but because of God's grace in us. God saves unworthy sinners, people from the gutter, and he redeems them for his own namesake. What does this mean? It means that the success story is not ours. It's God's success story. It is, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his success story that he has allowed and caused the church to persevere. Uh, I think someone said one time, uh, if I could lose my salvation, I would. <laughs> Does anyone feel that way? I, I mean, if, if that was a possibility, then I would have lost my salvation yesterday and the day before and the day and every day. <laughs> it is a testimony of God's grace. Consider that the church, made up of people like us, survived 2,000 years of persecution, of attacks from false doctrine, of factions within the church, and so on and so forth. Our own church, Crossview Church, is testimony of the effectiveness of the gospel. Do you recognize the encouragement to just look out and see there are other people who believe this too? There are other people who are walking in the faith too? Do you see the Lord's grace at work in that? There are still people that exist in 2022 who want to hear Scripture and want to know the Lord. And for all of the humanistic ideologies and philosophies that exist today, people still want to hear the gospel. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 2.8 warns against being take, taken captive by what? Vain philosophy, empty deceit, according to what? Human tradition. And to see 
all of, of you, and I'm talking specifically right now of Crossview Church and of, of this group right here, to see you saying, I don't want empty philosophy, and I don't want human tradition. I want the truth of Scripture and the truth of God's Word. Do you realize what kind of an incredible joy that is to me personally? And what kind of an incredible joy that ought to be to one another as we look at the effectiveness of the gospel? To receive and to stand in the gospel is a glorious thing and a tremendous joy. Now, I recognize and I realize... Uh, We we have been talking about this, by the way, at the 9 a.m. service, and that is we are seeking to expose some of the false doctrine and vain philosophies of the world. And and I realize that sometimes it is possible for us as Christians to look out in the world and to be, (laughs) oh man, I, I feel that like all the time, right? You look out the world, the whole world has gone to pot. Yeah, okay, it has. Do you know what's surprising? Not how bad the world is, but that it's not so much worse than it is right now. So so while on the one hand, lament is an appropriate human response and emotion to the world, and by the way, I would say if you're not lamenting over the world, there's a problem there, okay? While while lament is appropriate, on the other hand, you know, uh, rejoice, (laughs) Because God is at work in the world right now. And this church and the history of the church is evidence of that over 2,000 years. It is likewise a joy and a testimony to the gospel to see people holding fast to the word, as he says here. That is in verse 2, and that is an evidence of the effectiveness of the gospel as well. It's also an evidence of the uh, effectiveness of salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, 2, the second verse says this, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to what? Specifically in this context, the holding fast is to what? The word or scripture. In other words, holding fast to scripture is an evidence of salvation. Higher criticism and its destruction on the church has revealed that many people are not truly born again. I mean, you are familiar somewhat with higher criticism. Well, I don't know if Paul really wrote this, and uh, I don't think Solomon really wrote that. And Genesis, that, you know, that was compiled by, you know, four different authors. And we know this because he used a word in chapter 1 that he didn't use in chapter 50. Okay, wow. I'm... And and all of this kind of stuff, and can we really trust this? I don't think this is really God's word, so on and so forth, all these kinds of things. When we depart from the authority of Scripture, that is evidence of never having been saved in the first place, which is the corollary to what is being said here. If you hold fast to Scripture, then that is evidence that you are in Christ. Jesus, of course, said this much as well. Not only do we see Paul saying this in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. An evidence of salvation. Abiding in the word is evidence that you are a disciple of Christ. John says the same thing in 2 John verse 9. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God 
Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. He says if someone does not abide in the word of Christ any longer, then he says they do not have God. But if you do abide, abiding and holding fast and clinging to the authority of Scripture is evidence that you are in Christ. It is evidence that God has worked in your life. Those who say, did Paul really say this? Or, well, that's just Paul. He was a little bit misogynistic. We'll excuse him for that. Or, how can we really know this is Scripture? Those individuals are evidencing that they have departed from Scripture and they testify to their own condemnation. We read here that holding fast to the word is evidence of salvation. This does not, by the way, we're not saying some form of sinlessness here, okay? We are saying someone who continues to recognize the word is true, I violated it again, I repent in dust and ashes. That's abiding in the word. Uh, the the, the abiding, abiding in the word means that when you sin, you are taking Scripture's side against yourself. It, it, it's not referring to um, sinlessness. It is referring to a siding with Scripture, knowing that when I have sinned, I do need to repent and continue to believe in Christ. Holding fast to Scripture is evidence of salvation. And we see this even more clearly in the last part of this verse, where he says, unless you believed in vain. Those who do not hold fast to Scripture are the ones who have believed in vain. You're holding fast to Scripture, evidence of salvation. Oh, unless, unless you aren't holding fast to Scripture, unless you believe in vain, then that is a false belief, not a true belief in Christ. The evidence that you have not believed truly is that you do not hold fast. We sing the song, He Will Hold Me Fast, right? Now, whose task, who's doing the holding? It is Christ. We believe that we are eternally secure, John 10 and other passages that uh, teach to us that we cannot lose our salvation, that Christ is the one holding us fast. If we are not being held fast, then that means that we're not in Christ. One commentator explains the phrase this way, if people profess to believe the gospel but have not given due consideration to what that implies and what it demands, they do not really trust Christ. The belief is groundless and empty. They lack saving faith. And while some do believe in vain and eventually fall away, praise the Lord that not everybody believes in vain. And again, bringing that full circle to the testimony of the church over the last 2,000 years. Yes, there are lots of horror stories. There are lots of stories of people falling away. There are lots of stories of false doctrine. There are lots of stories of the church going in this direction or that direction. But the church is still here. And this is testimony to the grace of Christ. We can rejoice in that. From here, Paul transitions to proving the resurrection. He has demonstrated now that the gospel is effective, and he said, you know, look, look at you guys. You're evidence of this in all of the uh, uh, going back to sin that we do and coming back to Christ. There's still evidence of God's grace in that. And now he seeks to prove to us the resurrection and the, the truthfulness of it. 
And in this section, Paul is going to prove the resurrection is true in two ways. Number one, the resurrection is true because Scripture teaches it. In fact, I didn't put this up here, but we could have a sub-point A and a sub-point B, okay? Sub-point A would be the resurrection is true because Scripture teaches it, and we'll see that in a second. Sub-point B, the resurrection is true because of eyewitness accounts to the resurrection. That's in both of the, uh, both of those are, are in this section. He says, beginning in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Here's the phrase that's going to be said twice, in accordance with the scriptures, okay? That's the first proof of the resurrection. That he was buried, raised on the third day. Here's the phrase again, in accordance with the scriptures, okay? That he appeared to Cephas. Okay, what is this? Eyewitness accounts. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Okay, see those two things in here? He's saying this happened according to scriptures, number one, or A, B, this uh, was demonstrated by these eyewitness accounts. Now, before we look at those two things, I want to bring a third thing into my, uh, to, to bear from this, uh, these series of verses, and that is Paul's phrase, first importance. Do you see that in the text? I delivered to you, okay? Paul delivers something to the Corinthians, and what is it that he's delivering to them? Look at the verse. He says he delivered as a first importance. What was the delivery? What was the content? What was in the package that he delivered? A message, and the message was Christ died for our sins. That's what's being delivered, and he, he, he qualifies this message as being what? Of first importance. Now, I am going to make an attempt to thread this very precisely. Uh, I'm going to stand on uh, a proverbial knife's edge. And I'm going to attempt to walk down this edge of this knife and not fall off of it in one direction or the other. Okay? So pay very close attention to how we are phrasing this. Okay? All doctrine is important. Amen? Every word of Scripture, including the tense and the voice and the person and the number of the verbs, is important. Every last word of it. Okay? Some doctrine is of first importance, okay? I say I have to thread this because sometimes if you say some doctrine is of first importance or you say some doctrine is more important, sometimes people hear something that you're not saying, and that is that they hear this doctrine is unimportant, and that's not what we're saying. 
all doctrine is important. Some doctrine is of first importance, okay? Just consider an example. In Genesis 6, we read about the Nephilim on the earth. I preached this passage when I preached through the book of Genesis, and there has been a lot, a lot, a lot of debate on who the Nephilim are. Are they angels? Are they uh, giants? Or da, 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 what was going on? So, so on and so forth. Okay? Genesis 6, in the passage about Nephilim, this passage is in the Bible. Therefore, it is important. Correct? It is. Okay? Now, Romans 10.13 says this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's also in the Bible. That's also doctrine. And that is important. Correct? Okay. But I would argue that Romans 10.13 is, and I'm going to borrow Paul's words here, is of first importance when you compare it to the doctrine of the Nephilim. Why? Because that more closely affects the doctrine of salvation of soteriology. If you don't call on Christ, you are an unbeliever. But the doctrine of justification by faith alone does not prescribe to you that you have to believe this view of the Nephilim, okay? Correct? Okay, so do you see that it's all important, but there's something that is of first importance, okay? I think most of us agree with this in principle, okay? Another example is that I can fellowship with my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, even though I think they are seriously mistaken on the doctrine of baptism. Uh, I believe that the doctrine of baptism is important, I don't think it is essential to salvation, okay? You, I, I, I will, we will be in heaven with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, and then we will get to say, I told you so, okay? <laughs> but we're going to be with them, right? We're, we're going to be there, and we're going to be in heaven, and we're going to be together, Okay? Now, while, I could, while this could be a topic all on its own about what's first importance, what's not first importance, the doctrine of separation, how do we, we could give a whole series of sermons on this topic. Uh, I want to say just a couple of things here so that we don't get too sidetracked from the direction of what the text is, is taking us in. We need to be mindful as Christians that we don't separate over too little or too much. We want to pursue unity with the body of Christ. And we also want to pursue holiness. Now, from our perspective, there is a tension here. We have to desire both. Unity in the body of Christ requires us to be able to say, 
you hold to a different view of the Nephilim than I do, and I will tolerate you. I, I, will, I will be in the same church with you, okay? At, you, unity, we, we, we could not have unity if we had a doctrinal statement that was 100,000 pages long, and if you disagreed with one letter that we had, you, you see where you, you, you can't do that, okay? Because of, because of the doctrine of unity. We cannot obey the passages like 1 Corinthians 1 that call us to fellowship and have unity with one another if we separate over too much. Um, for example, another one, the, the doctrine of mankind uh, specifically is man two parts or three parts. Some of you probably have never heard of that, don't know what we're talking about. But <laughs> are we... I, I think man is two parts, okay? Uh, I may die... Uh, economist, not not a tri-economist, okay, but if you are otherwise, then that's fine, okay? I can fellowship with you, okay? On the other hand, holiness requires that we do have hills that we are willing to die on, correct? If there were no hills that we were willing to die on, then anything and everything could go and false doctrine would thrive. We cannot have, for example, gospel partnership with a denomination or a church that denies the deity of Christ. Again, I think intuitively we kind of understand this, though if we were to interview each one we might draw the line in a different location, but intuitively we understand that some things are of first importance. Okay, We have to pursue doctrinal integrity. What is noteworthy, though, to kind of come back from our slight rabbit trail and to go to the present text, what is noteworthy in the present text is that Paul does give to us one of the doctrines that is of first importance, okay? So whatever, uh, you, uh, wherever you have drawn this line, um, and I'm not saying we can be arbitrary in how we draw the line, but wherever, wherever you have placed this, Paul gives to us, here's one thing, that needs to be on the of first importance side. Okay, if you're trying to compile uh, mere Christianity, what is mere Christianity? Okay, this goes in the essential pile. This goes in the, as some of we've said before, tier one issues. What is it in this present text that is of first importance? What is a doctrine that we ought to be willing to separate over? And that is simply given to us in the rest of the verse here, and that is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Okay? If, this is first importance. If you don't believe this, you can't be saved. And and if, if there is disagreement, we can't fellowship with another church that would deny this particular phrase. Regarding this verse, J. Gresham Machen said this, He said, Christ died, that is history. Christ died for our sins, that is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. That's exactly what Paul is saying. 
I delivered this message to you, and this message was of first importance, and the message is this, Christ died for our sins. What is Christianity if it is not Christ died for our sins? This phrase, that Christ died for our sins, is the doctrine of the atonement, right? That Christ died for our sins in our stead. Christ was counted as guilty, and you were counted as innocent, right? This swapping of places, that's called the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, okay? That is to say that Christ was not actually sinful, but he was counted as being sinful. And that is to say that we are not actually holy, but we are counted as being holy. This is the heart of the gospel. When you understand the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, you understand that we contribute nothing to our salvation except, as has already been said, the sin that made it necessary. There is absolutely no contribution that you and I have given. Jesus took our punishment in our stead. It is interesting to note that, um, I'll give you a specific statement here, Uh, the Roman Catholic Church denies this. They have a different view of the atonement. Roman Catholic theology specifically denies that Jesus died in our place. Paragraph 603 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church says this, Jesus did not experience reprobation as if he himself had sinned. Jesus did not, in other words, experience God's wrath as punishment in our place, is what they are saying, okay? This is no small matter. This is of first importance, this is this is one of the, this is a big one, okay? You have an entire denomination taking that which is of first importance and saying that is not true. If there is any hill to die on as Christians, if if you had to pick just one hill to die on, pick the one that Paul says this is first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And this is true. We know this because it is in what? Accordance with the scriptures, okay? This is the first proof, and that is the proof of the testimony of scripture. Twice we read in this passage, in accordance with the scriptures. This is the first proof. Now, there are several places to go here um, where we can uh, see... The, the scriptures teaching the resurrection, that Jesus would die, buried, so on and so forth. I'm not going to give a whole list of them. I'm just going to go to one place. Um, actually, I'll go to a couple of places. But uh, the one Old Testament passage is Psalm 1610. Uh, David writes, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. Now, Paul or Peter preaches on this verse on, at Pentecost. And what does Jesus or what is what does Peter say was meant by this verse? In Acts 2:31, speaking of 
the psalm verse, Peter says, he foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, and nor did his flesh see corruption. Okay, so Peter says, you want to see the doctrine of the resurrection in the Old Testament? There it is. Of course, we also know that Jesus talks to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, okay? And what happens there? He, he kind of hides himself from them. They don't recognize him. And it says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he did what? He told them all the places in the scripture where it spoke of him. I have told you this before, and I uh, have not tired of complaining here. I shouldn't complain. If there was one sermon that was not recorded in the Bible that I wish was recorded, why? Why is it? What are the passages? Well, I want to hear Jesus preach a theology of, of Christology from the Old Testament. I, I, I want to see what, what was that sermon in, at the Emmaus Road. Uh, of course, the Lord, in his wisdom, knew that it would be better not to include that for us in Scripture. And so we trust in that and know that there are plenty of other places in the New Testament where we have that given to us. But Peter does, at least here in Acts 2, connecting it to Psalm 16. This is the first proof. The second proof is the eyewitness testimony. Um, th- this is, if, if, I, if I could compare the two proofs here, we have an objective proof, Scripture, and we have a subjective proof. But he does include the subjective proof. He, this is proof of the resurrection. He says that Jesus appeared to Cephas, or Peter. Then he appeared to the 12 disciples. Then he appeared to over 500 people, and then he kind of puts a little parenthesis here. Some of them have died, and some of them haven't died. <laughs> and, and then he uh, appeared to James, and then he says to all the apostles. And finally, Paul describes his own experience. Uh, he says, last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. This is post-ascension, by the way, when Jesus appears to Paul. And then he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecute the church of God. All of this points to the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection. This is not the only reason to believe in the resurrection, but it is a good reason to believe in the resurrection. Knowing human nature as an example of this, if the resurrection was a fabrication, why were so many of these disciples willing to go to their death over a fabrication. There is something here, albeit a subjective proof. It is a proof given to us by Scripture that the resurrection, that the eyewitness testimony is uh, a valid uh, testimony or evidence of the resurrection. It testifies to the truthfulness of this. And if the resurrection is true, then our faith is not futile, it is not in vain. And if that's true, then God's grace is effective and efficacious, as we will see here in the closing verses. These concluding verses of today's text provide us with no small amount of encouragement, okay? You want to be encouraged, soak up the grace of God for a few moments and find an incredible amount of encouragement there. Paul says this, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul considers himself the least of all the apostles. Now, do you, do you realize the, the portion of the New Testament that Paul has contributed to us? Okay. Do, do, do you reckon, if, if there is any human, let, let's just talk human terms for a moment here, okay? If there is any human that we would want to, to kind of lift up on a pedestal, so to speak, and, and praise this human, the Apostle Paul. Are you kidding me? Humanly speaking, okay, God forbid that we worship or praise a human, okay? But Paul, look at everything that he has done. Look at his contribution to Christianity. Look at his faithfulness to the end. And yet this man says, I'm unworthy. Now, if that ought not be a lesson to us, I don't know what is. Contrast this with the modern prosperity gospel message that you should always speak words of self-affirmation to yourself. I am good, I am great, I am lovely, I am wonderful, I have a big bank account, I da 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 okay? It, you see any difference between modern Christianity and the Apostle Paul? Modern Christianity, I'm awesome. Paul, I'm an unworthy, wretched scum. You, you, there's an application in there somewhere, okay? I'll let you drudge that out, <laughs> what the application is. Paul recognized his own depravity. And verse 10 is absolutely remarkable. And I want to read this one more time. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Okay. This is dense. First of all, he notes that God's grace was not in vain which means that God's grace was efficacious or effective or successful. God's grace accomplished the task that it set out to accomplish. Effective grace, okay? His grace was not in vain. That's first. Next, Paul says, I worked harder than everybody else, okay? Paul says, I am the hardest Christian worker out of the whole lot of you guys. <laughs> okay? But then what does he say? But it wasn't me. I worked harder, but it wasn't me. I did this, but I didn't do this. It is appropriate to bring up uh, the John Murray quote. And there, there are a few things um, that I do bring up repeatedly, um, and most of the time it's not because I'm suffering from memory loss, though maybe sometimes it is, but this is not one of those times. I'm bringing this up purposefully, and maybe we can post this somewhere, I don't know. This, I bring this up again and again because I think the way that John Murray has worded this statement on the relationship between God working and me working 
is probably the best statement out there, at least the best statement that I've come across outside of Scripture, okay? I think if I had to pick a Bible passage that said it the clearest, I would pick this passage right here, where Paul says, I worked harder, but it wasn't me. It was God's grace working in me, okay? So how does John Murray say this? He says this, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that the conjunction or the coordination of both produce the required result. God works in us, and we also work. But the relation, this is important, this is important. Do do we work as Christians? Yes. Okay? The doctrine of sovereign grace is not denying that we work. Okay? We work. Does God work? Yes. Here's what's crucial, and here's what we have to understand. What is the relationship between those two things? I work in God's work. God works. And here's what he says. The relation is that because God works, we work. Okay? Take that sentence and memorize it and drill it into your head. Because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. Not the willing to the exclusion of the doing, and not the doing to the exclusion of the willing, but both the willing and the doing. Okay, So what he's saying is, it's like, uh, so, so every year um, we buy some mulch to put around our flower beds, okay? And I take the wheelbarrow out there, and I get the shovel, okay? And the kids get the shovel, and we all put a scoop in, put a scoop in, put a scoop in, put a scoop in. And eventually the wheelbarrow is full, and we take it and dump it out for the mulch, okay? Um, in order to fill that wheelbarrow, it is a um, cooperative effort. You do your part, and I do my part, and then we've added all of that together, okay? What he's saying is that justification and sanctification, specifically in this context, sanctification, is not like that. It's not like, let me scoop in my good deeds, and God scoops in some of his own, and then God tallies it at the end and adds mine plus his. That's what he's saying when he says, um, neither is it the relation one of cooperation as if God did his part and we did ours, okay? The relationship is that God is working so that we work, okay? So in the same illustration, I'm the only one scooping the mulch into the wheelbarrow, okay? But I'm given the breath to do it. I'm given the muscles to do it. I'm given the hand-eye coordination to do it. I'm given the brain working to do it. I'm given the, desire, given the desire to do it. I'm given the strength to do it. I'm given the so on and so forth. God is, so it is true to say, I'm doing this. And it's also true to say, God is doing this. But it's most true to say, I do this because God does this. That is the relationship that is going on here. Let me read to you what Richard Sibbs says. 
Richard Sibbs says this, same thing. It is from God that we have means to make us fruitful. <laughs> you see that? It's from God. And from the gracious working of his spirit comes it that they are effectual. Okay? God gives us the means to be fruitful. The spirit gives us gracious working so that it's effectual. That we think a good thought. Even thinking a good thought comes from God. Or open our mouths to speak a good word. It is from God's spirit enabling us thereto. Never a word comes from the heart that is gracious and good, but it must be by the Spirit of God. It is he who works all of our works in us, and for us he begins the good work in us and perfects it to the day of the Lord. Isaiah 26, Philippians 1, the truth of this is wondrous clear. Do you hear what Sibs is saying here? You can't say, well, God does all the work, so I'm going to go sit down. No, God does the work through working in you. Okay. Let's read the two verses that Richard Sibbs referenced when he quoted this. Isaiah 26, 12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. <laughs> God, uh, all my good works, um, you did that. <laughs> you, I, I don't know how to be clearer than this. You did the work. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. He does not say, Jesus begins the work and you finish the work. He does not say, I saved you, I've done enough, you just take care of it from here on out. And if you lose your salvation, so what? No, he says he will complete it. He promises that the work that he began will be finished. This verse alone is proof of the doctrine of eternal security. Because Jesus Christ himself promises that he is the one who began it, and he is the one who will finish it. He did not leave that up to you and I to do. He does it. He will hold me fast. This verse, that is our verse in 1 Corinthians now, makes it clear that it is appropriate. And there are passages in Scripture where we say, my righteousness, or I have done this, or I have done that. Sometimes you read in Scripture passages that are talking about this. For example, David says in Psalm 7, 8, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. And this verse in 1 Corinthians 15 helps us to understand the broader context to this. It is appropriate when Scripture says, My righteousness. And oftentimes, my friends who do not agree with justification by faith alone will point out these passages and say, See? <laughs> See, it's our task to do this. And what I say is, how about we just look at the whole Bible? Let's, let's not just pick these verses or those verses. Let's see how the whole Bible talks to this. And the whole Bible brings both of these together, specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What does David mean when he says, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness? Well, if we brought that into harmony with 1 Corinthians 15, what David means is, God, you produced this righteousness in me because I couldn't do it myself. Thank you for causing me to do this. Now judge me according to that righteousness that is mine that you worked in me. This is what David is saying. There is, of course, a sense in which we can speak of my righteousness. After all, I am the one who actually did that particular thing, whatever it is. 
But just because I did it in one sense does not mean I get the credit for it because it wasn't really me that did it. And that's what Paul is saying. There is an even more foundational reality, something that, that um, is an underpinning to all of this, a stake in the ground that is not always given in every verse of Scripture. But here Paul makes it clear. I worked harder than he says it was not I. I worked, but I didn't work. That's odd. Well, it's not odd. Because if you understand what he's saying here, it makes perfect sense. God is the one enabling us to do the work, and he is the one who will ultimately do the work. This means that we can ultimately take no credit for our work. Not only our justification, but our sanctification. The whole package is God's work. And no matter, and he kind of closes here by saying, um, uh, whether it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. Paul says, no matter where you heard the truth from, you heard it. You know it. So where does this leave us today? Well, today's text is about the richness of God's grace as revealed in the effectiveness of the gospel. You cannot walk away from this passage and say the gospel is ineffective. You cannot walk away from this passage and say God's grace is ineffective. You walk away from this passage saying God always wins and his grace is effectual, it is efficacious, and it always accomplishes its desired result. The church is alive 2,000 years later. There are people here who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. Let's apply this in three ways. When you are tempted to be discouraged by the ungodliness of the world, Rejoice that the gospel message is still effective and that Jesus promises a prevailing church. Okay, we started off by that. Yes, we do say the world's kind of gone to pot. Look at all this. Look at that. Da, 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 da. Okay, stop, pause, hold on. The gospel is still succeeding. Jesus promised a prevailing church. Okay, that's number one. Number two, strengthen your faith in the, in the certainty of the resurrection through the testimony of Scripture and the numerous eyewitness accounts, okay? Our faith can all take some strengthening, and we can say, yes, wait a second, hold on. Scripture testified that Jesus would rise from the dead, and he did. Look at all these eyewitness accounts. Jesus did this. Our faith can be encouraged and strengthened that way, especially in the face of a lot of opposition. Um, Again, the secular philosophies that are trying to overtake the church, we can say, no, we have a good, firm foundation to believe this. And the final application is this. Do not take credit for your good deeds, but attribute every last success in your life to the unmerited grace of God. All of this is made possible by Jesus Christ, who gave himself, was raised from the dead, and he did this for his glory and for our good. We can rejoice in him. He is sufficient. The gospel is enough. God is good. Thank you, God, for your grace to us as is revealed in the gospel message, we thank you that the grace that you have given is efficacious. That is to say that it is effective, it is effectual, it is successful. And I pray that you'd help us to internalize this truth, to understand it, to rejoice in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.